The Major Spoilers Podcast is sponsored in part by the Mid-Ohio Con, October 4th and 5th, 2008, at the Greater Columbus Convention Center in Columbus, Ohio. For more information, visit midohiocon.com. I'm Matthew. I'm Brian. And I'm Stephen, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. The Major Spoilers Podcast covers news, reviews, and, of course, spoilers. And we will go into great detail about the topics we discuss. If you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we are talking about, you might want to come back later. This time around, who watches The Watchmen? Who remembers Earth 2? Who knows what evil lurks on Earth 22? Who wrote the Book of Love? For that matter, who wrote the Book of Leviticus? We're going to check in on Ultimate Marvel, the Batman of the future, Danger Will Robinson, a faithful spoilerette gets his just desserts, and there may be a scroll among us. All this and much more as we hit number 34, a date which will live in infamy. The Major Spoilers Podcast is on the air. That's right, everybody. You heard Brian in the intro there. We haven't had Brian on the show for quite some time. Scroll! Yeah, we think you're a scroll, Brian. <laughs> yes or no? Uh, of course not. No. Yeah, right. Have you guys we'll checked out, out that picture? Next issue. Have you seen that picture of him up on the website? My goodness. Brian, it's good to have you back on the show. Rodrigo is, I think he said he was off visiting family this week, so we gave him a little bye this week. Uh, and so stepping up to fill in the uh, end of the position, Brian. Well, you know, you know, he's gone back to Ohio. He's standing in lines for for the midcon ticket. <laughs> well, that's probably right. That's what he said last week. Was uh, Ohio was where he was going to? So good for him. A uh, lot of things and by going Ohio, on. He means the scroll planet where he will be replaced. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh yeah, I never thought about that. Son of a mm. gun. Hey, a lot of things going on this week up on the MajorSpoilers.com website. Uh, Brian, what? Why don't you kick us off? You found a couple things that you thought were mighty interesting. Oh man. I, I don't know if it was last week, uh, I think it was maybe Friday, you put up the Triumph at Comic-Con. Yes. Triumph the Insult. Oh, man, I was laughing so hard. I had to pot it down because I've got my own office, and people can't hear, but I was afraid people were going to come in and hear it. But, man, that was hilarious. Oh, I thought it was great, too, uh, especially whenever uh, he, he walked up to Scott Kurtz and just was totally ripping on him for his uh, his Skull character. And uh, Scott was good enough and went along with that and had a great time. And, hey, free publicity. The only thing that I was hoping was that Julian would have been able to get on there with his with his sign and have Triumph insult, insult him. Uh, but uh, that's okay. Yeah. Man, that, that, that's, that's just gold there. And, and what was great, though, was that everybody there, you know, probably aware of who he is, I would assume. Right. Because that you know, fits that demographic. But they all were good-natured about it. And and one one of the things about those bits, he gets meaner and meaner as the oh, bit yeah. goes on. <laughs> yeah, if you guys should go up on YouTube or somewhere, I'm sure you can find a lot more Triumph stuff. Especially back when the first Star Wars movie was coming out, he ripped really good on some people there. <laughs> I would well, hate for, to have him on the show because he'd probably reduce all three of us to tears. <laughs> yeah, well, he's just real sharp, man. But hey, one of the other things is I've, I wanted to let you know that I won't be on any more future podcast because I'm moving to Santa Clarita, California, and I'm moving in with uh, Hardy and hanging out at that comic shop, Best New World Comics, that you put up on the site today. Oh, yeah, the New World Comics, uh, they were the winner of the Will Eisner, uh, where is it, I got it right here, they won the award for Will Eisner's Spirit of Comics Retailer Award uh, at the San Diego Comic Convention during the Will Eisner uh, Awards. 
Man, that is a great shop, Matthew. Why can't you guys do something like that at uh, Gatekeeper? Because uh, we uh, have a $12 budget. <laughs> that, that is one thing that I will give these guys credit for. They've taken essentially an entire, what looks like a, a Victorian-style house, and just mm-hmm. converted it into comics and more, all ages, singles nights, a gallery upstairs. What? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping they'll adopt me. <laughs> they don't adopt scrolls. No, I... Is there anything that the scrolls are known for saying? Because I'm not real familiar with them, so I can just be, you know, not saying that. Death to lately, humans. Lately, their their catchphrase has been "He loves you." Yes, exactly. Uh, and Brian, but strangely saying, enough, I love the, the Brave New World comic book store. Hey, yeah. did, speaking of of cool things that appeared up on the site, did you guys check out those high resolution uh, Watchmen posters that oh the DC released? God. What they are is they actually took the actors from the movie and they posed them and shot them to look exactly like the in-house ads that DC ran way back in 1986 uh, to promote the uh, to promote the comic book. I am in love with Laurie Jaspasic again for the first time. <laughs> oh, those are just beautiful. And uh, for all of the complaints that we may have had about, you know, bat nipples or whether or not the the trailer was true to the spirit of the book, because honestly, you know, 30 seconds worth of stuff on television can tell you everything you need to know about a 2-hour movie. Right. This really shows not just a respect for the source material, but maybe even, you know, kind of a reverence for the sports, the source material that I didn't, I really didn't expect out of the production team, which I enjoy a great deal. Well, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say what Zack Snyder is doing is, you know, he's trying to be as faithful as he can to the original art material. We don't know about the story yet because we haven't seen the movie. Uh, but, you know, some of the things that people are complaining about, nipples on Ozzie Davis's uniform and, and all these other things, that's, that's all there to say, hey, look, we're deconstructing. And in order to deconstruct, we have to either pay homage or we have to make fun of the things that came before. So I think it's, it's going to be awesome. For yeah. those of you listening at home, Ozzy Davis is what Steven says when he means Ozymandias. That's what Brian oh. says and got me hooked on that. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, it's I, funny. I, and two, have, have we found out if they're changing his name? Because I, I, I've been a fan of the idea of simplifying some of that stuff. No, it's because, good. all the names stay the same. Oh, did they? Yep. Why would they change his name? Well, I don't know. I just thought maybe for merchandising purposes it would be easier to call him something else. Ozzie I Davis. mean, his... It, Historically speaking, the whole backstory of the character is tied into that worship of Alexander the Great, yeah. which uh, it's interesting, I suppose. Uh, good news well, for who, Scott. Who is it the, well, go who's ahead. Playing the, who's playing the Silk Spectre uh, number one? The older one? Yeah. I don't know, but isn't she just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? She reminds me of, and this sounds really bad, just in the face, she reminds me of a young Mary Carver who was the Simon and Simon's mother in the, uh, in the TV series. When I first saw that, I thought it looked like Olivia Newton-John. Oh, there you go. I can see the Olivia Newton-John, too. Give me just a second, and I can tell you exactly who it is. Vamp, while well, I go to she, the wiki. She was, she was in um, uh, Sin City. Right. And she, she was in Snake Eyes, was the first movie I remember seeing her in. But uh, Snake Eyes? Was, was that a Nicolas Cage film? Yeah, Nicolas Cage, uh, Brian De Palma film, I think. It, you're yep. not confusing you... that with Snake Eyes on a Plane. No, yeah. <laughs> No, I, you have to drop the f bomb before that one, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you we can't kids. do that. You can't. Uh, you can't watch that film, Brian. Uh, Stephen yelled at me last week for dropping an f bomb. <laughs> but but no, the good I, thing was you waited until the end of the show. Well, I had to. Her name? No, that's not right. 
the thing about the thing about Watchmen is, you know, I read it late, um, but I think you know, looking at the stuff, it looks really good. I'm not one of those per- people who's going to be upset if they change it because I don't have as much reverence for it. I think it's really good. I think it, you know, you have to read it if you like comic books. But the the trailer looks fantastic. There and there's no way they could have done this movie, you know, ten years ago with with right. what they need to do with Dr. Manhattan and, and things like that. But it looks really good and you know, I think that there's enough material in there that you could actually simplify the story a little bit and still have a pretty robust movie. Wow. Apparently, according to IMDB, the woman playing Sally Jupiter, the original Silk Spectre, is Carla G- Carla Gugino Gugino from Entourage. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Which one she is was she? The woman- She's she the agent. Karen Karen Cisco. Yeah, that's the same actress. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. And the picture of her on the website looks absolutely nothing like. Yeah, what you're seeing what there. Seeing. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> but they, I know they intentionally they cast young actors, right? Even for the parts of the older characters, so that they could do the makeup and make them look older, but so that the youthful scenes wouldn't have to recast. Interesting. Which is why did they, they didn't take the guy who I thought would make the perfect comedian. Did they have they cast and and are using the older, you know, uh, not just the Silk Spectre the number one, but they're using that whole story about the uh, group that came together. Well, I guess they have yeah, to. Yeah, they, they have to. I mean, the comedian's yeah. in there. They've got the original uh, Night Owl yeah. in there, Night Owl 1. Yeah, okay. And, and Dollar Bill characters. and the Silhouette and Mothman are all... Um, they were in the shot that Stephen put up of the original Minutemen. Right. And the Hood and all those guys are in there. Yeah, Hooded Justice. I cannot wait. March cannot get here fast enough uh, for the Watchmen movie. Uh, last thing, Brian, uh, the last time you were on the show so many, oh, so many, many months ago... <laughs> I gave you a stack of Scott Pilgrim trades that we were going to get to. And uh, the good news is the the fifth uh, installment of the uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the Universe hit stands, oh, I think in 2009, which may be the time that I get to see those four four (laughs) issues back. Have you had a chance to look at those Scott Pilgrim uh, comics? I got through the first one, and then, of course, yeah, things transpired, and I was changing jobs and, and wasn't on the show and all of that, but... My experience with that was I was reading it thinking, oh, you know, I guess it's kind of cute and all that stuff. And I couldn't really get into it and didn't understand why you were wanting to review it until this point where it's just like, what What do you mean he's the best fighter in town? Right. And it just goes bizarre. Yeah. And after that, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it, and I think I would read the rest of it. I just haven't got a chance to. All right. So. Well, by 2009, that's your deadline yeah. to get the other four <laughs> in so that we can uh, review it when the fifth issue well, wh- hits. Here's what you should do. You should have a big major spoilers uh, premiere party for Watchmen. And I'll bring those with me. <laughs> well, we can. We'll see what we can do, uh, and see what we can do about uh, making making it available to other people as well. Speaking of making things available to people, do not forget we've got this fantastic Dark Knight Two statue, this limited edition statue uh, that we received from our good friend James at uh, Collector's Pair of Dice, and uh, we're giving it away. It's real simple. The contest. Uh, all the rules are up there on the website. We just want you to get your picture taken with somebody holding up the major spoiler sign, and you get entered into a drawing to win this contest. You have until the end of the month. And I keep seeing people saying, oh, I'm going to go and enter. I'm going to go and enter. We've only gotten four entries, and they're all from the same guy. And if people don't (laughs) enter, 
Julian's going to get this uh, get this statue in addition to that Milo Thatch uh, action figure that he won last week for being the first person to write in with the correct answer to who James Garner played in uh, Disney's Atlantis animated movie Ad- Atlantis. Uh, who was it? I forget Maverick. his name. Yeah, he was the <laughs> yeah, not Maverick. Come on, guy. He was the uh, he was the mean, uh, grumpy uh, sergeant guy that uh, turned bad at the end of the movie. That's who he. Jim Rockford. No, Jim Rockford's a good guy. Oh, my bad. So don't let Julian win. That's gonna. I'm going to have to put that in there. Get your contest entries in. Uh, you got until August 31st. We'll draw the name live on the show that night. And uh, somebody's going to get this statue, limited edition statue, easily worth $175. It can be yours if you just enter. If the price is right. Yes. Okay. Now, the thing that we wanted to get into in the show, the big things, reviews, things that people are so interested in. Brian is our special revered guest. Why don't you kick us off with with this uh, great Ultimate Origins number three? Well, when I saw the title page, I thought it was going to be a great Ultimate Origins number three. I opened it up, and it's Captain America on the on the title page. I did, we don't get to see the cover in the file right. that we get. Right. So, so I see that, and I've got an affinity for Captain America. I read Captain America when I was younger. I've actually got my Captain America run, and it starts from 1979 on. Hey, did you get those pictures? Yes, I, I did, and I'm going to put those up tomorrow because I think they're hysterical. Okay. Well, it, it's great because you look back at this time and they're they're doing things that is trying to make him seem hip, and one of them is just sad. But <laughs> and, and what's great about that time too is how preachy, just the amount of dialogue in the fight scenes where he's talking about the American people won't stand up for this. So it, it was kind of fun. So I see Captain America. I think I'm going to read this. Well, the only reference to Captain America is actually there in the title page because this is a story. <laughs> about an obelisk, which I'm saying that right, right? Well, it's not true obelisk, but yeah, sure, we'll call it an ob- obelisk for this. Some some ancient some ancient piece of technology. Yeah, anyway, this, this piece of technology appeared at, at the instant that Captain America was created in the lab and that the doctor who created him died. Right. Well, they, uh, they've shipped it away, they put it away next to the Ark of the Covenant someplace, and they'd forgotten about it. Well, it suddenly reappears. And so now, the beginning of the book features the Fantastic Four taking a look at it, at S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters. And this is my first criticism of it. Um, those pages in particular, not the rest of the book, but in those pages in particular, I, I couldn't really follow where I, which panel I was supposed to go to next. And that's kind of a small thing, because you read them, and then you figure out, oh, this is the tone. But it just was, it was a little confusing. Not a big deal, but I just kind of didn't like that. But that's kind of a self-contained piece, then all of a sudden this, this piece, this artifact starts showing up, apparently, everywhere there's a mutant. Yeah, that's what that's I thought idea. was really cool. Actually, yeah. I, I like that, because here it was dormant for all these years, and all of a sudden, either it or copies of it start appearing everywhere. Yeah, and so that, that's kind of the end uh, in this story of the current day part of the story, and then we jump back uh, in time, and now we're at, in Canada at the... Uh, facility, and I don't remember its name, but the Weapon X facility. Right. And, and, and so this, the rest of the story deals with uh, Magneto, or Eric Lanchier, who's going to become Magneto, and his relationship with Xavier. Now, one thing I don't know is, in the Ultimate Universe, have they already established these characters, and these are just going back, telling backstory? Yes. Or, yeah. okay, I didn't yeah. know if this was the first introduction in this 
realm of these characters. No, the X Men, uh, the X Men and Spider Man Ultimate versions have been around for what has it been? Almost five years now, Matthew, something like that. The X Men is pushing a hundred. Spider Man is pushing one twenty five. You think? Yeah. So Spider Man was the first, and then it kicked off with X Men, but it didn't start with oh, here's where the first X Men. So this is all new story for people huh? that are reading. Well, and that's kind of cool. I I enjoyed. I thought the art was good. Um, it wasn't art um, that I you know I would say oh you have to go back and look at because it was so magnificent. But it was appropriate. It wasn't distracting in any way, and and I liked it. Um, the story is actually interesting um, that uh, Magneto is actually the person who releases Wolverine from the Weapon X facility, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of a, a neat sort of, and it's a very small piece. They don't really deal with it as much, uh, the fact that he just simply sets him free, lifts him out of the tank using his powers, and then sets him free, and then kills everybody. Uh, including uh, his not, mother not and Wolverine. father. Yeah, not Wolverine, but uh, Magneto kills everybody. Right. And yeah, his folks... Had, had been running the Weapon X facility. Um, so then he later he goes off, a few years later he goes off and he tracks down Charles Xavier. We're not really told how he does, well, no, I guess we do, uh, that Xavier has written a book about mutants, and that's what has led Eric Lynchier to, and I'm hoping I'm saying that right too, uh, to meet with him. And, and there's a really good part of the story right there where Charles Xavier is lecturing to his class and Magneto is standing in the background. He's not in any kind of costume or anything, but he's thinking thoughts at him. And so we're getting the bubbles, the word bubbles of uh, Pro- Professor X reading to his class and the conversation that they're having uh, in the thought balloons, I guess you would yeah. call it. And so I thought that part was really good. And it kind of jumps around. It shows you different points in time and that they're now in the Savage Land later and they're going to create... The new, uh, the new school, um, and that Magneto starts putting together a school using the thoughts of uh, Professor X, who can't read his mind, and that's kind of one of the big things that uh, that character, the Professor X character, keeps coming back to. He can't figure out why he can't read the thoughts of Magneto. Yeah, and he's not wearing any kind of a helmet or anything mm-hmm. like, I guess, the regular Magneto wears to block the telepathy. So. But it was it was a good story. At the end, we see the obelisk again, and it is at the place in the Savage Land where they're about to create this new world or new school for mutants. And so that's that's basically where it ends. One thing, I don't know, Stephen, what's your take on this? At the end, when Magneto is using his powers and we see the start to create this large kind of tower for the school, he says one thing at a time. Is he talking to Professor X, who's feeding him his ideas about what he wants in a school, or is he talking to the artifact? I think he's talking to Professor X, and okay. and you know what I and I don't know if it, this has already been revealed or not. Um, you know what I think that obelisk is? It's what? the ultimate Watcher. Oh, see, Watcher, I, the What If books. Yep. Yeah, I used to collect those, too. Those are great. Yeah, that's what I think that is. I think that's the Ultimates version of the Watcher. I mean, if they can turn uh, uh, Galactus into a big swarming cloud of robotic insect-type things, then surely the the Watcher can just become this obelisk that just happens to be appearing at all the key moments in time 
when yeah. these mutants are occurring. And and I think probably what may throw you off, Brian, is you jumped into issue number three, and I think you really need to read the first two issues because it really builds this great story of how does the whole mutant universe and the ultimate universe come about. And I- issue number two actually focused on Captain America, which was, was quite good. Uh, quite different than what we've seen in the regular 616 universe. And I thought that this was a really solid uh, piece of storytelling. It kind of makes the story evolve a little bit more, and there's some more clues and backstory revealed that I kind of liked. Uh, but I didn't think it was a spectacular issue. Well, no, and and that's the thing. I think there was some character development. The, the things that the characters did were interesting. Uh, obviously, the most interesting person in this story, to me, is Magneto. Uh, he's kind of the the per, the protagonist that takes us through the story a little bit too it it felt disjointed on purpose i know about the fact that they introduced the artifact and then we jump back in time and then there's no reference to that at all until the end but you know they're telling uh you know a bigger story than a one issue type of story the one thing i do like about the ultimates and uh rodrigo kept saying you know you should read the ultimates you should read the ultimates is I always do get a kick out of the reimagining of, okay, you think you know Captain America, well, we're going to take the story and go left with it. Right. And we're going to do it in a different way. And so, yeah, I think I would probably, you know, want to keep reading these origins just for the fun of it. And I think that it was well written. I would say probably, you know, a 3.5. I, I, what, I, what it comes down to to me, do you want to read the next book? And yeah, I do. You know, I, I would want to see what the story, what happens next. So I, I liked it. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give it a three, a solid three. I, I thought it was a good progression of the story. But as Matthew and I, and I have discussed before, it's starting to fall into the we've got six issues or five issues, or in this case, I think it's eight issues, and we've got to stall a little bit for time. Now, see, that's what I thought happened, and, and this, will, this is a throwback to how long ago it was I was on the show, but that's what happened with um, Foundation. Yeah. Yep. Is that mm-hmm. one that one book? It seemed like we had a good idea for like three books, and then we stalled for two in the middle. Matthew, did you check out Ultimate Origins yet? I gave it the once over, and uh, again, I'm not. I, I have not been drawn into the Ultimate Universe. Ultimate Spider-Man seemed like it might be interesting to me. I've read all the trades of that. I'm not a Spider-Man guy, so I don't go in expecting you know to have. Uh, a love experience with it. I read Ultimates Volumes 1 and 2. I finished up 2, basically, to to close out my experience, to give me a, a, what I like to refer to as a great jumping-off point mm-hmm. for the series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've touched, I've looked at Ultimates 3 and Ultimate Origins in the store, and i got to tell you, it, it, it hits one of my great dislikes of especially now but you know eternally in comics which is we have to tie everything together we have to answer all the questions and having the origin of every single superhuman in a universe come from this one event to me gives less verisimilitude to the book it seems like you know we're tying everything in we're we're basically throwing everything in here to this one moment this is the moment where everything changed as though in a world where you have a man lifting cars with well, a flip of his fingers, we're supposed to have suspension of disbelief. I it's, would, it's, you know, I would almost agree with you, except in our own real world, we had such an event happen that changed how the whole rest of everything went. 
and it was it was the atomic bomb, the first atomic bomb. The minute that bomb went off, everything changed. No longer did we live in a land of mystery and unexplored territory. We were now science and to the moon and transistors and technology. You know that. You know, if if we were to go back and say, did such an event happen in our time? We could point to the nuclear bomb and say, here's all these things that spun out of that. So to a point. I agree with you, but then I, I keep thinking of, of this example, and I say, no, I could see how the testing that they're doing on Wolverine could lead to the super soldier experiment, what they've done with Nick Fury, what they've done with everyone else. Well, don't get me wrong. I see the positives, and I see— Oh, no, you're wrong, I, sir. You no, are just no. wrong. <laughs> no, that's Tom and Grice. Brian Brian <laughs> Michael Bendis doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> no. Here's the thing, though. I can definitely see— the value and you know the the draw in having everything pull from a single point in history i can see that to where this is the moment where everything changed in the beginning of our modern superhuman age whatever i just don't like it as much as having steve rogers have you know an origin based on the super soldier formula and having the mutants come from a separate, distinct strain of humanity, right. not necessarily tied to that. The thing, I think one of the things, and this may just be me, and I just said one of the things, which I try not to say on the podcast anymore, that's one for those of you counting at home. What bothers me about it is, and I think, you know, this, this may tie into my dislike of Wolverine. Here's the modern superhuman model in the Ultimate Universe. Captain America to Wolverine to God. Essentially, <laughs> Captain America is the first superhuman, but Wolverine has to be in there at the very beginning, and we have to tie it all together. And well, that's just an issue you have with Wolverine, and I would I tend just, to agree with you. I don't, I don't like it as much. I, I mean, I like it when things don't have to be tied together. I mean, if you meet somebody, well, it's the same issue and you that spend you have. Time, you know? It's the same issue that you have with Batman. Why does Batman mm-hmm. have to appear in? every single issue that DC puts out? Why does Wolverine have to appear in every single title that, that Marvel puts out? Why does Wolverine have to be the the, the crux, the centerpiece right. uh, for the whole Ultimate Why Universe? Why is he the focal point of the whole Ultimate Universe? Well, and the simple answer is because Wolverine's cool, man. Why but the more complex you? answer... Go ahead. I'm sorry, you got to bring me up to speed, though, because I haven't read those first ones. Are are. Is, is everything coming from the fact that Wolverine was the first mutant and then the experiments on him branch out from, to everything else? Pretty much, the issue, yes. Issue 1 started kind of going back to 1942 and the super soldiers that came before Captain America. Which happened to and, include Nick Fury. Right. Nick Whoa. Fury and exactly. Wilson Fisk. Wilson Fisk, the kingpin, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And, and a young James Howlett. And... Because they were working on the super soldier formula, that is supposedly what triggered James Howlett to become the Wolverine. Yep. Oh. And it's Nick all Fury. so weird. Yeah. Nick Fury has superpowers, which allowed him to live for 65 years and still look like Samuel Jackson. <laughs> and well, he went, didn't he look like Hasselhoff for a while? <laughs> no, not in the Ultimate Universe. <laughs> Only for two hours in 1988, and we, we begrudged that the whole time. Baywatch Shield. <laughs> well, wouldn't you have loved to seen Pam Anderson dressed up as the Contessa? I don't know. That's a mighty specific fantasy. I, I would prefer. I, I would prefer. Uh, uh, what's her name? Emma Frost. But there you go. All right, let's Emma. let's migrate away from the uh, from the world of Marvel comics and let's well, dive. On. Oh, Matthew, go ahead. Hold Brian. on, just one one thing. 
What's what's the reference? Why is the regular universe called the six one six? Oh, good question there, Brian. I'll tell you. My name is Matthew, and He's I a read far too <laughs> Way, way back when Alan Moore first started writing for Marvel UK, he created the Captain Britain series where they, I don't know if you guys read Excalibur, where they were going through the different universes and multiverses. And Alan Moore came up with the designation of Earth-616 to identify Captain Britain's home reality, the regular, as we know it, Marvel Universe. And now that Alan Moore is, you know, basically, you know, put up on a pedestal and worshipped by many people in the comics industry, uh, people have gone back to that Earth six one six designation. Okay. Well, I just, I'd heard I'd heard you saying that, and I didn't know yeah. if it was a, some kind of a numbering well, thing that some people about, some people claim that uh, it's from Fantastic Four number one coming out in the sixth month of nineteen sixty one six one six. There's two problems with that. The first being that Fantastic Four didn't come out in June of 1961, and the second being that Alan Moore has no idea what they're talking about. So, <laughs> other than that, it's a perfect formula. Well, and essentially, it's just a reference to the multiple universes that are that occupy comics. Exactly. Uh, and speaking of multiple universes, dun, dun, dun. as we make this segue, good question, Brian, to segue us into our review of Justice Society of America, the annual number one. This is interesting because it followed right up on what was the last issue of Justice Society of America? Was that 20? Uh, 19, 20, 14. Oh, I'm sorry, like ni- uh, 17. Issue 17. This yes. this is kind of spins out of the uh, Gog Magog uh, storyline. Where is at it the Magog end- or Magog? I don't know. We'll call him Magog. Because, you know, Magig. at the end of the world, I'd hate to be mired in a syntax. I'm just going to call him Magig. Magig? Magig. So, Magig is going around the planet, curing everyone of all their woes and troubles, and Power Girl, who has probably one of the most convoluted, mixed-up, screwed-up, retold, retold again, reimagined, and then retold origin stories out there, uh, he looks at her and says, you're lost, you need to go home, and zaps her to Earth 2. Dun-dun-da! And Earth 2 is the place that had the, uh, the, what... Many people might consider the Golden Age uh, Superman, the Golden Age Batman. As they grew up and grew, uh, got older, they actually had kids of their own. Uh, Helena the Huntress is Batman's daughter. Uh, Robin is in there, you know, still adopted. Uh, all these characters have grown up are, and are essentially the older versions of what we see in Earth uh, 1 or New Earth. Right. And uh, Kara came from that planet and got trapped during the Crisis on Infinite Earths. And uh, Magog, or Magog, sent her, sent her back. And that's what the story takes place. And it is a, it is a, I don't know how to describe this issue. There's something not quite right with Earth 2. There's a word for it, and my friend Bruce coined the word for this issue. And um, the word is cluster schmoz. <laughs> there's, um, there's too much going on in this issue. And frankly, let me spoiler it for you right now. This issue does not simplify the origin of Kara Zor-El. No, it doesn't. It makes it that much more confupleifned. The the issue starts out, Power Girl, Stephen and I are tag-teaming on this one, so he's holding the rope right now, and I'm I'm going into the ring. Um, That was my wrestling reference for the day. Thank you, drive-thru. Body slam, body slam. Hello, driver. The issue starts with Power Girl arriving on Earth 2, and running into her, at one point, who was her best friend? Helena Wayne, the daughter of Selena Kyle and Bruce Wayne, the Huntress, 
who are the daughter of Batman. And we find that the Justice Society of America and Infinity Incorporated are still active on this version of Earth 2, even though versions of them appear on New Earth. Uh, which is, the, which is the weirdest part. In fact, in this issue, the Justice Society of America and Infinity Inc. have uh, formed to uh, create the Justice Society Infinity. Yes. Or Justice Infinity Society or something. Jizz. The JSI. Justice Society Infinity, the JSI. Yeah. And the JSI members welcome her back into their midst. And they, of course, consist of, you know, the second generation of Infinity Incorporated, uh, Robin, grown up, the second Wildcat, the children of Alan Scott. Also, the original Adam and Star-Spangled Kid are still on the team. So this basically picks up, and oddly enough, I want to make this reference now, it, much like the action comics run that Jeff Johns did recently where he picked up the Legion of Superheroes, it picks up from the last point before the Crisis on Infinite Earths, well, where these characters would have been. Basically, I, I it's would as say though it picks up maybe about four panels after uh, <laughs> the issue in 52 where they show Earth 2, and right. it shows everyone standing around with the headline on the newspaper that says Power Girl and Superman still missing. Right, but if you look at the characters that are in this, in this book, on New Earth, Nuclon has become Atom Smasher. Right. Uh, Lyda Trevor... Lyda Trevor uh, was captured by Morpheus, and her son is now the new Sandman. Silver Scarab died and came back as another version of the Sandman. Um, the Wildcat, Yolanda Montez, died. Ted Grant, the original Wildcat, is back. Uh, Sylvester Pemberton became the Skyman and eventually died. All of these characters went their different ways after basically right about Crisis on an Earth, Infinite Earth number 9, where they merged, or maybe it's 10, where they merged the six remaining Earths together. So basically this is a pining, as did the Action Comics run with the Justice, or with the Legion of Superheroes, that those worlds continued to exist, and New Earth was created as a separate and distinct Earth at the point where we merged, quote-unquote, all the Earths. And they even point that out when Kara uh, Power Girl is talking with the Justice Society, uh, because mm -hmm. they're like, hey, look, R.J. Garrick is still around. You can go talk to him tomorrow. Yeah, our Alan that, Scott is still here. Yeah, and, and what's cool about this story is she has to tell everybody, hey, you know, your Superman, the Superman that I know, my best friend, is dead. Uh, he he right. died during the uh, the infinite crisis. Fighting, and, saving us all from Tom Welling Prime. Right. <laughs> what's sad, though, in this story, I guess, is that the Huntress is trying to cope with being the daughter of Batman and Batman's motto of no killing uh, because her fiance and i guess i'm not going to spoil the secret behind the, the fiance uh but mm -hmm. her fiance is it henry is that his name uh harry harry uh gets all messed up by the joker who continues to age and who is a very very old man continues to think that a new generation of villains needs to be created so he burns uh helena's uh fiance with uh with acid in hopes of creating a new two-face and so she's kind of out for revenge and while she's out on night patrol power girl shows up to go help her and they go bust into uh, joker's headquarters and there's a great splash page with this aged joker sitting in a wheelchair all decrepit on oxygen uh trying to still run his empire and mm -hmm. this moment when helena decides that hey i'm gonna kill this guy i don't care and Power Girl stepping in and, and taking care of that for her. Uh, I just thought that was a great moment in the story, showing that here are two friends that even though for Kara Power Girl, 
many, many mm-hmm. years have passed, they're picking up or trying to pick up with their friendship. And one of the things that Jeff Johns does really, really well is with a character like the Joker, he can kind of isolate a moment that to me really encapsulates what they're all about. And the moment that really, really just takes me, I mean, takes my breath away with the Joker is the moment where he laughs and coughs and nearly throws up and says, it hurts to laugh. Yeah, that is so great. That, I mean, that is just the moment where I think and go, okay, Jeff Johns really has a handle on the Joker. And if he does but, have a handle on the Joker, it's because maybe part of it is the Joker kind of is um, masochistic. Could be. And kind of maybe likes to laugh and have fun and, and continue to hurt himself. Could be. I know that it's Joker's own fault that he dies in this issue. One of He attempts to kill Huntress with one of his little tricks, basically a joy buzzer with 100 million volts in it. Power Girl, as you said, saves Huntress's life. Her invulnerability saves her, and the feedback kills the Joker. Yeah. But, I, but th- you know, things get really weird then when Power Girl, our the Power Girl we know, and Huntress are chatting, and the next thing you know, she's getting a big old smackdown by someone that looks just like Power Girl from Earth right. 2. From the classic Wallywood costume Power Girl. Yeah, exactly. Before she had the porthole. And that is the point where they lost me. Because they've made it too complicated. Obviously, our Kara is not the Power Girl of Earth 2. Which is... It, I, that, but the I whole totally point of Infinite Crisis to me was, this is the Power Girl of Earth 2. She just ended up on New Earth. And now she's going to be fulfilled and she's going to be a better hero and a better person because she knows where she comes from, even if she can't go back. Now, I don't know what, what's going on with uh, Jeff Johns on this, but my thought is... Did you get the impression that maybe when the multiverse was reformed that maybe Power Girl got reformed too on that Earth too, and now Kara Zor-El that we know as Power Girl is a product, even with her messed up mind, is a product of New Earth? Could be. One of the... Dang it, almost said it again. My thought process on this is, and I wonder about this, is this Earth too? Really, the original Earth Two, or is it just a reasonable facsimile thereof? Could it is be, this a could it be a that, new alternate? Earth? Could it be that Megig is messing with people's minds? Megig, Megig. <laughs> I don't know, but the the issue ends with a really, really disturbing sequence where Kara Zor-El of Earth Two, the the old school Power Girl, goes back to the JSI and rallies her friends and family to hunt down and kill her doppelganger, our power girl, the one with the porthole in her costume. Yeah. And if you look at the last splash page, it's Jerry Ordway, and I love Ordway's art. I have always loved Ordway's art. But the characters look demented, especially if you look at the look on Fury and Nuclon's faces. They look like they're crazy. Yeah. And I don't know if it's intentional, but it's just disturbing enough to make me sit here and think, okay... There are, they may be giving me a clue in the art that this is this is a lot more than it seems. But. Well, and I certainly think that with the Magog or Magog or Magog storyline that's going Magog on in GSA, that he's not the benevolent being that you were led to believe. I think this is one of those careful what yeah. you wish for kind of things, Twilight Zone-ish issues. For an annual, I thought this was a really good story. I'm giving it a four out of five. Um, I just, you know, I love the fact that we get to see some of these older characters. I, I like the fact that this is, 
one of the first, if not the first, uh, else not Elseworlds, uh, multi-Earth story that we've seen since 52. We've seen some references, and we've seen some characters uh, come from, but this is the one that actually takes place on a parallel Earth, and it's great that it happens in an annual. I would have to agree with you up to a point. It's a good issue. It's well drawn. The first half of it is a wonderful story. The moment where we introduce the doppelganger Power Girl makes the the fanboy, you know, uh, need to explain everything and make a flowchart in the back of my head just cringe. And I'm going to have to go with three out of five stars. Definitely an above average effort. Beautiful book. Nice to read. But the ending leaves me wondering, WTF, you know, what is going on here? And how many issues of JSA is it going to be before somebody explains to me and clearly explains to me in a way that I understand whether this is or is not? Well, it can't be. I'm going to say that right now. It cannot be the Earth 2 that we know and we saw. So I want to know what's going on. Is this a product of New Earth? Is this something entirely different? Um, you know, is is Magog not actually sending her to Earth to yeah. so much as making her think she's on Earth too? Yeah. I don't know. Well, you'll Three find out. out you'll find out in JSA number eighteen. Trapped on Earth two, Power Girl is on the run for her life. Meanwhile, the GASA must deal with the mysterious Gog and the loss of another teammate. Ooh. ooh. Dun, 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 dun. So if you missed it, the Justice Society of America Annual Number 1 came out last week. Uh, Ultimate Origins Number 3 is in stores Wednesday morning, depending on when you download this show. It could be today, it could be yesterday, it could be sometime this week. Uh, so go and check it out. If you're listening to this in 2010, hey, how's it going? Do we have flying cars yet? Yeah. Do, do, they have, uh, do they have these issues in your dollar bin? Exactly. And as always, once we get through with reviews, it's time to turn the other direction and look at the major spoilers poll of the week. Poll, 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 poll. We're going through a, a phase right now, and it's kind of a very childish and phase. I know, but it has a larger purpose. And I, it I, will I, all I, become I, clear in about 60 more of these. Whatever you say, <laughs> Jeff Johns. But no, I was going to say you should have said Garth Ennis. That would have been, or not Garth Ennis, ooh, Grant ooh. Morrison. That would have been there you a go. little bit better. Oh, yeah, there is that. It's kind of a dorkal combat situation where round six, fight! This time we're looking at a little robot-on-robot robot action and get your mind out of the gutters. It's a fight. On, on, on the one hand, in this corner, weighing in at 974 pounds from the Forbidden Planet, he's got a dome for a head and he talks really funny. Robbie, the robot, pot, 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 pot. And his opponent, hailing from the Jupiter 2 somewhere in the far future. He, too, has a dome for a head, but it's shaped differently, so you can't sue him or nothing. Environmental control robot B9. You may know him better as Danger Will Robinson. Danger! Let's... I don't know. I don't know. This was actually a suggestion from Rodrigo before he left last week. He's like, "Oh, you should have the robots fight." And and then yeah. some people have said, "Oh, well, what about Optimus Prime and all these others?" This is not the end of robot fighting, people. Right. Brian this is. How about yeah. you kick us off with uh, who who would win this this battle? Who's your vote going for? Well, I think design wise, I like uh, I like Robbie uh, the robot. And and my wife just walked through, and she's looking at me strangely, wondering, only hearing this end of the conversation. <laughs> That's the best about. end of the conversation to listen to sometimes. <laughs> uh, 
Well, design-wise, I like the uh, the uh, Forbidden Planet, but I think in a fight, if you look at it, I think that the B9's arms are more to the sides, so mm-hmm. I think it's got more arm action. And we've seen, you know, the Danger Will Robinson, they go crazy. I think you could just wrap up the other robot and kill him. Matthew. Well, here's something that most people will absolutely believe and not at all be frightened by. I was a geek as a child, and every Sunday morning, Channel 41 would show Lost in Space, you Star Trek, correct. Wild Ooh, Wild Channel West. 41. We used to get 41. There you go. And in the season, see, the first we're season, all connected. We are that's all right. connected. You know, we're all connected. But the thing is, oh, that's going to be better. I'm going to say the thing is instead of one of the things. It's awesome. All right. <laughs> For season one, uh, Dr. Smith, Smith is played as a much more sinister figure. And at one point, he reprograms the robot to kill the Robinsons. And the robot walks at them and fires billions of volts of lightning. Out of his claws. Now, I never saw Robbie do that, and I gotta tell you, it's like I say about Superman versus the Hulk go with the guy with the laser vision. I'm voting with B9 because A, he's got a cooler voice, and B, he can shoot lightning out of his hands. I think he's a, a more credible threat in a fight. And also, you know, he's just that cool. You guys are just wrong. No, we're not. Come wrong. on, Robbie the robot is the quintessential robot. He is the Ooh. man's man robot. This guy not only was created by the Krell Mines, he is <laughs> he knows how to drive that super cool, fast atomic car. He can whip up some alcohol, and he weighs <laughs> something like nine tons. <laughs> and he's got those cool clacky things in his head. Come on! Clacky clacky things. Robbie the robot all the way for me. Sorry, people. Well, I- I'm telling you, the one thing, though, that you got with B9, he's got that kind of rock'em, fock'em robot head. Well, right? that's exactly. true, yeah. You can knock his head off and it'll pop right back up. Yeah, that's, also, that's cool. <laughs> also important to note, though, they were both designed by the same man. Yep. Which, you know, may actually account for some of the similarities. The thing that I think will put B9 over the top, and I think really you have to take into account personality, the man... The robot has a personality, and Robbie was never, ever reprogrammed by savages to be a caveman robot <laughs> walk, walking around the fire going boom, 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 boom. So he's, well, I, I think he wins just on that alone. But did, did Robbie, if I remember, didn't Robbie have legs and yep. B9 doesn't have legs? Yeah, you are correct. B9, he has tracks, which would allow him to go over things that Robbie might not be able to step over. Ooh. Robbie drives an atomic car. You this can, way, can, gentlemen. You can trip Robbie. True. All right, so head over to the Major Spoilers website, Majorspoilers.com. Take the poll for yourself. Weigh in on this heavy issue that has got the Major Spoilers podcast panel split this week. Already <laughs> early. Two early. to one a split, Stephen. <laughs> well, because uh, my vote counts uh, three times. so You're on the losing side, <laughs> sir. He's going to edit our opinions out, and he's going to win. Exactly. Yeah. My name is Brian, and I think Robbie the Robot is great. My name is I'm Matthew, and I think good too. <laughs> I talk like this when Stephen talks for me. This is how I talk when Steve talks for me. Hello. Early results are already in. 107 votes so far today with B9 in the lead, 62% to 37%. 
38%. Please, no. Robbie the Robot, uh, bring it us up. Oh, and surprisingly, last week, more people like Joel than they like uh, than they like Mike Nelson. So there Woo-hoo! you go. All mm-hmm. right, Brian, we are uh, getting pretty close to your step-off time. Do you want to stick around for a little bit longer, or uh, yeah. do you got to go? No, I'll stay around. Okay. All right. We're going to talk about... We're talking about something good. We're talking about something that Brian... I, was this the thing that got you back into comics, Brian? And well, now you stole my one line that I was going to say about Oh, okay, this. I'm yeah. sorry. Hey, this week we're talking <laughs> about Mark Wade and Alex Ross's Kingdom Come, one of the best Elseworlds titles to come out of the mid-90s, in my opinion. Uh, Brian, what do you think of this book? Well, no, I think th- this was the book that got <laughs> me back into comic books. <laughs> This this is such a different book because, you know, the Elseworld series was going on for DC for some time, and there were some great titles that came out of there. Gotham by Gaslight, Red Rain, um, the um, the one that featured the Cthulhu monster essentially coming to Gotham. Um, Can so, you name one that isn't about Batman? No, because most of them were about Batman. There was a great one that had... Um, Superman coming to Gotham and being adopted by the Waynes, I believe. No, no, no. It was Superman and the Green Lantern Ring. That was pretty cool. But it took place in the 1800s. No, it took place in the 1800s, and he met uh, Tesla. Do you remember that one? Probably not. There were so many of them. But one that stands out time and time again is this telling of the DC Universe in the far future, or maybe not so far of a future, to the point where traditional superheroes like Superman and Wonder Woman and the Justice League, uh, they pretty much said, hey, we're better than society, and began to distance themselves uh, from society. And then you had this new next generation of superheroes, very much like what we're seeing in the Justice Society of America. Uh, This new generation of heroes try to step up, but they're a little bit more intense, man. They're ready to go go the extra distance that their that their predecessors, their forefathers, wouldn't go, and it leads to a huge conflict. Uh, Essentially, this is a retelling of Armageddon through uh, comic book eyes. And that's where I feel like it goes wrong. Okay. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Brian, go ahead. Well, first thing, too, I've read this as the trade. Did anybody read this issue by issue? Uh, I read it issue by issue, and I thought it was wonderful. And I think this is, again, the problem that I have with reading something that comes out once a month and it's a short series, is that sometimes it was hard to catch back up with what was going on in the story. So I had to actually go back and read the issue previous to go, okay, now what's going on? But since then, yeah. I've read it in the trade, and tonight I'm looking at it through the absolute edition eyes. Uh, well, the the first thing that you've got to say about this book is that you know when uh, I got to give a shout out to Jason Hall. He's a comic book writer. He's written some stuff for uh, Star Wars Tales. He was living here and uh, was actually working part time for the Access Center I worked at, and he said, "Here, you got to look at this stuff." Is he the one that did the independent comic that Whiplash or? Yeah, yeah, okay. that's him. He's got okay. he's got his own website, and he and yeah, he did this one independent that's really cool. Um, and he's got a he's a website. If you Google Jason Hall, I think you'd probably find him or or Jack Peril. But th- I mean, the first thing that strikes you about that book is Alex Ross's art, and I am a huge fan of his art, and I understand that at this point, people some people have gotten tired of it because he is kind of everywhere now. I still like that kind of look. I get a kick out of figuring out who he's, you know, trying to copy, you know, who, who's this, you know, based on and who's that based on. But, that, I mean, that's the first thing that grabs 
grabs you or grabs me is that it's just so different than everything else that I had seen that had come before. And then when you get into the story, um, I think, you know, you, there's so many themes in it. Uh, you were talking about, um, you know, it's a retelling of Armageddon and things like that. I mean, it, it, it's got themes about, you know, Superman has essentially become an isolationist and, and has said, you know, this is somebody else's problem. I'm not dealing with it. And how, you know, that doesn't work. And, I mean, there's, there's just all these kind of grand themes that go through it, and, and those little subtle things are what make it a really good and interesting book. Um, you know, I just I just really, really, really liked it, and it got me excited about comic books. And one of the things it did, which, I, you know, I didn't think anything could do this, it made me care about Superman. Because when I was a kid, every once in a while I'd get a Superman comic book. And even as a little kid... I realized what's the point because nothing is going to hurt him. And, you know, he's, there wasn't any interest in me for Superman because there wasn't any, you know, there wasn't any fleshing out of the personality. Nothing was really going to harm him. So what was the point? And in this, I mean, he's got some serious flaws and I hadn't really, you know, tuned into the whole Boy Scout mentality that, you know, surrounds him. But that, you know, is a real big part of this, that he just, you know, doesn't get it and is is living kind of in the past with a different set of morals. And the interesting thing that you were talking about is that all the classic superheroes that, you know, there was a line they would go up to and they wouldn't pass. I would argue that you see, as they've gotten older, Wonder Woman has clearly, you know, like people do, has gotten more somewhat conservative and I think more uh, black and white about the world. Batman has become a little bit more um, black and white about the world as well. And it's Superman is the one who's still naive about things. And it just, I thought it was a really great, really great story. Well, you said the one thing that uh, we were going to spend most of this entire episode talking about, uh, Alex Ross's art, which... I agree with you, uh, Brian. I think this is some fun stuff because where else are you going to, uh, where, where else are you going to see Bruce Wayne being portrayed by uh, who is this? Not Cary Grant, um, Peck. Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck. You know, where yeah. else are you going to find something like that and go? You know what? That really works. Where else are you going to see? You know, um, uh, all these other characters kind of drawn, looking like people that you could say, "Hey, if I had the ultimate." Uh, people of the world that I could put in. I mean, Fred McMurray as as Captain Marvel. I mean, yeah. come on. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is one of those things where you're like, if I could have the ultimate cast of past, present, and future, who would I put in this? And that's kind of what I really liked about this. I mean, it, on the one hand, and this is probably what Matthew would say, it kind of dis- distracted from the story a little bit. But on the other hand, you get a page where there's a hundred characters, and in the background, you're like going, "Oh, look, there are the monkeys." You know, or, yeah. you know, there's so-and-so, and there's so much going on in there that it, it can at times, I think, be distracting. But at the same time, I think it was really fun. Um, well, at, th- at this point in time, when this Kingdom Come was first released, Alex Ross was a pretty well-known name. He still is. Uh, he had just come out with Marvels a few years before. Uh, and Kingdom Come was kind of his next big project, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was part of the big appeal to this story. Now, Matthew, you would not agree with either Brian or I. 
there are things that I will tell you that I love about this book. What do you love about this book? I love the comics history and ephemera that you see in this book. Fred McMurray was the visual basis of C.C. Beck's initial description and drawings of Captain Marvel. I right. love that. Right. Um, it, there was always the legend that claimed that Elvis walked into his hairdresser and showed him a Captain Marvel Jr. comic book and said, I want that haircut. And then later in his, in his later years, he admitted to mo modeling his jumpsuits after Captain Marvel Jr., his hero. And Cap Jr. grows up to be King Marvel, a very Elvis-esque figure. I love that. I love the art. Well, and there, there's actually that. all these little touches. I mean, he goes, uh, Ross goes back and says, hey, this Superman is going to have the classic Fleischer S on his chest. Right. And I, I mean, I like those touches, and the art is very, very interesting to look at. But when, when I go in and look at a book, and people, this was my big complaint about Mike Deodato on Thunderbolts, and this is part of my ongoing thing with Alex Ross. I like his art. I like the theatricality. I like the, the photorealism of it. But there's a point where that photorealism is less static and less dynamic. And that, to me, it comes across, and this is after 10 years of reading nearly everything the man drew. I loved him in Marvels. And when this book came out, I loved the way it looked in the bits and pieces. I mean, I liked seeing um, the, the Beatles in their robotic Sergeant Pepper uniforms. I loved seeing the Monkey Men. But as I go through and I look at it, I, I don't feel like this has, and I've made this argument before, it hasn't aged in my mind as well as a book of its importance to me really should have. When I look Why at it, the, that, main, think? the main problem I have with it, other than you know my general complaint that Alex Ross's art, let's say Gregory Peck is playing Batman. Okay, well, take into account the fact that in my mind... Gregory Peck has never played Batman before. It takes away part of what I love about comics, which is the art generally tends to be something that your mind plays along with, especially Golden Age books or Silver Age books. Very crude. You have to use your imagination and become a part of the creative process. When Alex Ross says, Gregory Peck is Batman, when Mike Deodato says, Tommy Lee Jones is Norman Osborn, it takes a portion of the reading experience out of my hands and in the right hands. And if I agree with the portrayal, that's fine because I like the Gregory Peck as Batman. I like the uh, big fat Lex Luthor who looked like Tor Johnson. Yeah, I like these bits, but this game, this, this book overall, after a while, it turns into two things. The background turns into a big game of that guy. Yeah, hey, it's that guy. Where's Waldo? Yeah. Hey, it's that guy. You look, oh, hey, that's the Ray, but that's the other Ray, and that may be Hawkman, or maybe it's Northwind. I don't know. I like those sort of things. The, the thing that, to me, really weighs the worst on the work so far for me, and don't get me wrong, I, I, I mean, I'm not a highly religious person, the apocalyptic biblical imagery bothers me today well you know i don't even know if it if you took out the 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 norman mckay character the our guide through this through this event uh -huh. if he had just been a regular schmo on the street and not a preacher who had lost his faith would this have been a religious story 
Would you? Would there still be all that symbolism? Because I did not, you know, I grew up in a pretty strict uh, Catholic upbringing. I could tell you even less about Magog and Gog and all these things at the end of the world. Uh, so to me, it didn't come off as a religious story. Mm-hmm. It'd be rude of you. No, yes, I mean, <laughs> you said it. What, well, yeah. what, what makes it for you come off as a religious a there, religious I mean, there theme are, story. There are overt references to the book of Genesis throughout, right. and there are the quotations from the Bible. But what it comes down to, to me, at the end is, I both like and hate what happens at the end with Superman. Because there's a moment, and it's a very well-done moment, and again, I love the fact that it plays out the way it does. All of the new heroes, the ones who you know, remarkably feel like the heroes from Image. Yeah. And pointedly and intentionally so, all end up being caught up by Superman and his, you know, defenders, whatever you want to call it, and put in a prison. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, all of the Image heroes are there together, and who is the warden of the prison? Captain Comet, who is probably, you know, numerically speaking, DC's first real post-Golden Age superhero, the first entry into the Silver Age. And he is killed. So the Silver Age is killed, metaphorically, by the new Dark Age heroes. And they basically go nuts. And Superman has the moment where he thinks, okay, well, I might as well stoop to their level. And he's ready to, I, th- I think it's the United Nations building, which looks just like the Hall of Justice. Right, at the end, <laughs> yeah. Because it's Alex Ross. Um, <laughs> he's ready to kill. He's ready to kill everyone. And Norman McKay, the normal down-to-earth guy, tells him, you know, you're better than this. You cannot do this. You're Superman. You stand for something beyond that. Which is wonderful. But then it also brings into question the whole last son of the planet Messiah question. Essentially, there's a moment um, he's about to destroy them, and Norman says, you blame yourself for Captain Marvel, for Kansas, for everything that happened. They won't forgive you for this. Forgive yourself. So, I... I it's it's hard for me to describe. It's it's such a personal book, a very personal book, and a very personal vision from Alex Ross, and I would say, you know, to an equal degree, Mark Wade. Mm-hmm. But it's a personal vision that no longer, to me, resonates and feels really relevant, I guess, if that makes any sense. Alex Ross, as a creator, is one of those guys that I have a love-hate relationship with. I either love it more than anything, and um, I don't know if you guys, if they collected that sequence after Kingdom Come, the six months later sequence from the hardcover. Yeah, that was that's in this, and that's also in the trade paperback, where they go and they sit down at the... Uh at the Krypton planet or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. And they find Krypton. out that, yeah, and they find out that uh, Clark and, and Diana are going to have a, have a kid together. Yep. And Batman agrees to help them raise the kid. And then Batman and Superman have their big hug, and Batman looks like Mandy Patinkin. Yeah. And Superman, <laughs> Superman basically looks like an elderly Christopher Reeve. That sequence resonates for me beautifully. I love that whole sequence. I love... That portion. I love the bit at the very end of when the, when the bomb has gone off, Superman has flown away, Captain Marvel has essentially saved the day, and there are millions of people who are, you know, hundreds of heroes who are dead. But we see that moment where the big green bubble comes up, 
Right. I love that moment. I can't really put my finger on what it is that doesn't doesn't ring right for me anymore. You know, it's it's difficult. And I actually did a review of this probably what a year ago. Yeah, a year or so ago. I think you did this as one of the retro reviews. And yeah. you know, I think probably. And I and I've seen some other criticism. And and Brian, you know, jump in, please. But I've seen some other criticism that the reason why Kingdom Come may or may not work today is because we've had stories that have either done Kingdom Come better or we are to the point now where the ideas presented in Kingdom Come of what makes a hero have been told ten other times in other titles. And maybe that's the watering down effect. That could be it. Um, we had a friend in college. I don't know if you remember Chris Erickson. Probably I not. No, I don't. He was an associate of Bruce Otters. And Chris used to say to me, I hate the Beatles. And I would say, why do you hate the Beatles, Chris? And Chris would say, because they sound like everything else and everything sounds like them. Right. And, and I tried to make the point to him that the Beatles were the seminal work that everything else that he likes are stealing from. And maybe that's, I mean, it, it could be a little bit of that backlash. It could be, you know, uh, people accuse me, and you accuse me specifically, Stephen, of being the guy who goes the opposite of the crowd, regardless of whether the crowd is going somewhere where I need to go the opposite of or not. To some degree, that may be true. But when I look at this book, there are a lot of really wonderful moments, and there are some great drawings and some great interactions, and there are bits and pieces of it that you know, ring as well as anything that you read in the Marvel mod modern modern Marvel universe. And DC, DC as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That too. Whoever. You know, one of those people. I like the references to... <sighs> well, Brian, can you help him out? Does this story Burger still Burger. stand up? When was the last time you read Kingdom Come? Oh, no. I, see, I tend to read something and then don't revisit it. Oh, you're one of those people that never buy movies on DVD, aren't you? Well, my feeling is that it has a lot to do, and, and all of these things have a lot to do with who you are at the point that you read it. Um, and like I said, I was not into comic books, and I had a vision of what I had read and had seen in the past, and this was really impactful because it was completely different. I think what, what Matthew's talking about as well is someone who doesn't read as much and who is not as involved in everything that's coming out, I haven't seen this told ten different ways or people mm -hmm. stealing from it. So to me, it still stands up, and it, doesn't, it hasn't been diminished because I just haven't been exposed to different other things. But one of the things you're talking about, too, is, is as someone who maybe, you know, and maybe it's just the point of view of not having as much exposure to comic books, the whole thing about this book and the reason that it's my top, of everything, is that because the story is good, but not only that, you go back and look at the art, and I've got Marvels, and do the same thing my son, you know, we, you go back and just look at the art, because the art in itself is interesting, and there are those things in the background, and those things that send me to Wikipedia going, okay, who, you know, mm. who is that? And, you know, it's it's this version of, you know, it's Red Robin. It's, you know, and, and the explanation of who that is. And those big pages of, of just interesting design and mm -hmm. what they also did in redesigning. I mean, I think the Superman in Kingdom Come, in my opinion, is one of the best designs of, oh. of Superman. 
But Stephen, you said something about the S. Had that S appeared before? Yeah, in the, the old uh, Max Fleischer cartoons from the uh, the the nineteen thirties and forties, uh, with the S on the black on the black background. Okay, but not that particular kind of flash design. Right, not right. that design. Right. Say, but okay. it's it's a throwback and. I, I agree with you on the design perspective. I mean, the moment where the transforming robot Batmobiles, yes, who look so like the awesome. '40s Batmobile, are busting the Cosby Kids in uh, Gotham City, did or, they just totally ruin it for you, or what? No, I love that. And the moment you know, there's a scene where we see Superman's army, and they're they're apparently in Japan because there's like a Kabuki warrior and a girl with you know kind of a Chun Li looking girl and a giant robot. The designs of the incidental characters are just awesome. Well, but, and I would and I would argue that that may be the one thing that causes some people to not like this series because I'm reading it and people are like, "Oh yeah, that's the Joker 2, the Joker's daughter or whoever." I'm like, "Who the mm-hmm. hell is this person?" And everyone's like, "Oh, look at that guy. That's a Wildcat." And I'm what do you mean that doesn't look anything like Wildcat? Or I hadn't even been exposed to some of these characters before reading Kingdom Come and Back in 1995, or what is this, 92, whenever this came out, there was yeah. no Wikipedia. There was no, you know, I'm, I'm listening to you go off about stuff while we're sitting in class, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, Shining Knight? Who the heck's the Shining Knight? And that may bring up another good point, is when this was an Elseworlds tale, I liked it. And granted, you know, I'm 15 years older, I've changed in my perceptions of the world, and I, I have honestly become less of a fan of Alex Ross's personal vision of things because it is so personal. Um, one of the things, and I know that this is entirely about me, it's not about Alex. <laughs> Alex Ross does not consider the Martian Manhunter to be a real member of the Justice League because, and I quote, he was never in the Super Friends. Now, I want you to know that that is essentially a misquotation of something that he said in the Wizard Kingdom Come special. And Alex is very, very personal and very opinionated about his work. So when this was an an Elseworlds where I could go, yeah, this is Alex Ross's take on it, and it's awesome, it was one thing. But when it became to the point where Roy Harper became the Red Arrow, and Starman is in continuity, and now we have the Earth-22 Superman, and this is considered, if not the future, a possible well, future, and an th- alternate future. I think when this was originally written, even though it was in Elseworlds, they, they were like, okay, this is where things were going. And when we did our interview with uh, Mark Wade a couple of episodes ago, he even said, hey, mm-hmm. this is the, one of the reasons why we had to have that follow-up series a couple of years later that tanked, uh, mm-hmm. and um, why some of these characters were happening this way, because this mm-hmm. was supposedly this in-the-future type event. Now with right. 52, and like you said, this being spun off to Earth-22, and the mm-hmm. fact that we are seeing a lot of these characters appear in really just a society more than anything, uh, I think it makes it an even more important book to go back and read. But it's almost too important. It's almost overinflated in its importance in that, and I complain about this every single issue of Justice Society, it's, hey, here's another, you know, subtle reference to Kingdom Come coming true in our reality. I, I don't need that. I don't want that, because Kingdom Come, to me, is kind of a cautionary tale of what should not happen. Right. And, again, it's a very personal thing for Alex, and I, I, I appreciate the fact that 
you know, we're bringing it to a, a point where it's a higher profile book, even if it's just a question of let's sell some absolute editions. You know, I can get behind dollars and cents, but the, the oh my God, look, another Kingdom Come thing is really wearing on me. It's grating on me because they can't go there. They cannot make the DC what, Universe what if, into Well, we've already got Earth-22. What if, right. and I'm just saying what if, JSA was Earth-22 of the past? What if I flip that into your head, or New Earth was Earth-22 of the past, and the mm-hmm. Earth-22 that we've seen in 52 is actually the future? And so the Superman that's in JSA and, and Starman uh, are all from the future, and not from present time. Would that flip so, anybody's head? That would explain how, Power Girl not being on the right Earth 2. How do we know that the color blue that I see <laughs> is the same color well, blue that you see? And the reason is, as I'm bringing up a child, and as uh, Brian's bringing up another child, and that you're bringing up a child, because we tell the kid, hey, that's mm-hmm. blue. Hey, that's right. this. Hey, that's Captain Adam. Hey, that's Superman, and Superman's the best. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to expose my son to Superman and Batman and all these DC characters, and when he turns 12, he's going to love everything Marvel. Yep. Possible. So, you know. But, you know, Matt, what you're talking about is is something that I don't agree with. Or, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, I think, in a sense of Kingdom Come... I like because it is self-contained. It's this story, and that's great. The fact mm-hmm. that it's leaking into, and I don't even read DC, but the fact that I see it on the website, you know, leaking into the stories now, I think diminishes it. I, I think that it, it's, you know, kind of this nice, pristine, pure thing. Let's put it over here, and let's don't diminish it in any way. I, I just don't, I don't care for the fact that they're adopting that stuff because it is, it is in my opinion, you know, it's an else world. It's not what's going to happen. It's this variation of the future. It doesn't just diminish the work of kingdom come to me. It diminishes the mainstream DC universe because again, they can't go here. They cannot make this the actual DC universe. And if they do, they're going to have to make it a dream or a hoax or an imaginary story. Well, there you go. We're at the will of the writer. It could be a dream. All this could be a dream next week, Matthew. But that's the point. When when I read a book, and I go through and I read a book for years, and you know, as a Legion fan, I have personal ties to this. If they say, oh, wait a minute, these stories never happened, that ticks me off. Oh, sure. It, it makes everybody angry. But then but when, you give when, it another five years, and they do it again, and the other and the older people are like, ha, 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 we knew this was going to happen. And then the younger <laughs> generation is all like, how can you do this, Joe Casada? I'm never going to read you bringing the company down. Stop, stop it, Corey. <laughs> the, uh, okay, here's the thing. In 1996, I felt that this was a, a world-changing book. In 2008, it's still a world-changing book, but it's a book that changed the world of 1996, and the world of 2008 is already well past that. I want to see something new and different. I don't want to see 1996 in my 2008 comic book. So if I have yeah, to, yeah, but put you want to see your 1950 Legion in your 2008 comic book? I do not. How dare you, sir? <laughs> How dare you? You want your you want your Silver Age Legion in your current age 
Superman titles. I do not want my chocolate in my peanut butter. Okay, they they taste great together. Is all I'm saying, Brian. Some some we don't have time to. We're so running out of time. What are some? <laughs> I would like to in the future devote a, maybe a, a two hour podcast where we just go through page by page. You, you mean a normal podcast? No. <laughs> No. How dare you, podcast. sir? And this hey, was the last did. time, ladies and gentlemen, that Brian will ever be invited back on the show. <laughs> Say goodbye to Brian, ladies and gentlemen. It's <laughs> moving to California. Uh, no, but I would like to just spend a whole entire episode where we just go page by page and talk about the story, because we really haven't talked about the story. We've talked about some themes. We've talked about art and what we like or don't like. But, what, are, Brian, what are some closing thoughts or what are some overall thoughts that you have that kind of sum up this and, and why it's your number one your number one book. Well, I just think, like like I said in the themes, I think you can take what's going on today and see that story as applying to today. You know, America is is Superman, uh, the the shining example to the world. But then the world moves on and gets a little rougher, and and so Superman withdraws, becomes an isolationist. Then, you know, things get out of control, so he has to come back out. But now he comes back out, and now I'm going to, you know, be the policeman of the world. And that he's not prepared that the world has moved on. And, you know, like the Revolutionary War, we beat the British because we evolved the way we fought. And they said, oh, you can't fight that way. That's dirty fighting. I think we've run into the same thing with, like, terrorists where we say, this is the way you fight a war, and they say, no, this is the way we're going to do it. And I think, I, I actually, you know, think you can put those themes into the story. I think the story is so well written that it leaves itself open to numerous interpretation. And, uh, and you know, again, the art. So I, that, that's why I think it's the, the best thing I've ever read, comic books. I don't think this is the best thing that I've ever read. I think it's very good. And I'm certainly a big fan of Mark Wade, and, I, and it's certainly in my in, high on my list. Um, and I probably kind of agree with you, Matthew, a little bit as I'm flipping through this Absolute Edition. You know, there are certain things that you know what don't hold up very well twelve years later. I'm I'm going to say it's still a very good book, and I and I really think that as as a cautionary tale, as a as a something to sit back and ponder book. I think if people want to read it as a standalone book, then please, by all means, just read it as a standalone. We, people can read Watchmen as a standalone. People can read uh, the first volume of Runaways as a standalone without having to go into all the other things. I think people could just read Kingdom Come as a standalone, and if they have the basic idea of who the characters are in the DC universe, then you'll have no problem understanding the story. I would agree. It's definitely an above-average book. My my thing is that many people throw it at me as saying this is this is perfect, this is beautiful, this is what comic books should be. And there there's a lot of gas left in the tank. It's a good, strong title, and if you take just these four issues and read these four issues and maybe the epilogue with the big hug between Superman and Batman, I think you've got a great story. I would say three and a half out of five stars easily. I'm, well above average, but not not the, the, the creative tornado, not the overwhelming force to be reckoned with that people seem to, to imply that it is. And I'm, giving it a, the I'm giving it a 4.7. <laughs> well, hey, is it better than uh, Frank Miller's Dark Knight? For the first Ooh, book? you son of a... Don't even start that argument. I, 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 I still say Dark Knight is better than Kingdom Come. 
That's because you worship Batman. No, it's not because that I was... worship Batman, because it was, as Brian said, for Brian, this is a defining book for him because of the time in which he read it, and it kind of got him back into comics. For me, The Dark Knight is that book that really clicked it for me and said, this is a different take on all the cheesy Superman and Batman stories that I ever read before, and so that has become my number one book. Mm. For me, it was uh, Marvel Premiere number 35, the first appearance of the 3D Man. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> oh, boy. You know what? If I could put a plug in, and, and people can go up to the Major Spoilers website, and if you go over to the right side and you scroll down to the Amazon section, if, even, if you, even if you don't see the, the uh, Kingdom Come listed there, you can click on any of those books and you can still search for Kingdom Come. And if you purchase it through Amazon, you can throw a little change our way, even if you don't buy directly through an ad. But I would really recommend this Absolute Edition of Kingdom Come. First of all, it's oversized. It's got this nice cover to it, hardbound book. It, the pictures are wonderful. It's got all four issues plus the epilogue, plus it's got uh, writer's notes on uh, who all the characters are on all of the covers, which to me just blew me away. Uh, it's got a uh, kind of a frequently asked questions by Mark Wade in it that answers a lot of the questions. It gives a breakdown of who all of the Legion members are and what inspired them and where they came from. It goes through almost every main character in the book, and you get to see Alex Ross's sketches and comments on them from both the good guys and the bad guys. And in the very final pages, there's a sketch and there's even uh, references, and this is what I liked about the Silver Age, uh, I'm sorry, New Frontier book that we reviewed. In the back of that Absolute Edition, they had a breakdown page by page of what was going on in each panel, and so that's all included in this Absolute Edition. It's probably still 75 bucks, but my God, it's a great volume yeah. if you're going to collect something of this, of this magnitude. And see, that's something I haven't. I had only read the issues with the epilogue. So, the the copy of Marvels that we have has got a lot of pages where it shows how uh, he took pictures of people doing the pose, right? And then beside it is the is the piece which I find really fascinating too. Again, being a big fan of the work that he does. So yeah, I mean that would be something I would certainly want to read. Other thoughts, other comments before we go. Cheese. All right, everybody, we're going to break now for some cheese. I'm going to prefer some Colby Jack with a little Pepper Jack on the side. And while we take that little break, until next time, I want to thank you for tuning in to the Major Spoilers podcast, downloading it, however that you're listening to it. We may go live on the Internet webs one of these days. Uh, our web. Don't forget to visit the website, Majorspoilers.com. Hit us up on the forum where you can chat about this show. You can chat about really anything that you want. There's some great threads going on from Stevie Cool and a bunch of other people throwing in their comments and thoughts. Great job by Hermit, who's actually going in and doing some mini-reviews of trade paperbacks. You can be our friend on MySpace at myspace.com slash majorspoilers. We appreciate all the great comments people are... are, Leaving over at iTunes and Podcast Alley, one commenter said, hey, these guys are doing what they should be doing. This is what a comic book podcast should be about. These are geeks without being losers. And I love that comment because I wonder, I want to know who he's referring to when he says not being losers. Uh, I'm I'm on the show this week. That's what it's about. Yeah, Brian's on the show this week. If you want to hear more, Brian, please let us know because we'd love to have him back full time. Uh, Don't forget we've got this Dark Knight 
contest statue. Get those entries in. You've only got a little bit of time. Big thanks to the Mid-OhioCon for being a sponsor of the show. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, speaking of future shows, next week, the Starman Omnibus Edition, the first 16 issues by James Robinson. We're going to break it down. It's going to be a longer podcast. Maybe we'll clip off some of the front end. Uh, any comments, suggestions, anything like that, that Starman suggestion actually came from a listener. Drop us an email at podcast at majorspoilers.com. So until next time, remember, we know that Brian loves comics, and we know you do too. Thanks for listening. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.